0: I'm in Japan. I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor W. Brian Arthur will join us to discuss the nature of technology.
1: So, stay tuned for all of this,
0: plus the Grokatron 5000,
1: and our world-famous question a week,
0: coming right up here on the Grok's Science Show. Back to the Grox Science Show. Well, without the constant advances made to technology, the modern world as we know it would not exist. But how do technological innovations rise? And why are some cultures extraordinarily inventive? Well, joined today to discuss this issue is Professor W. Brian Arthur. Professor Arthur is professor with the Santa Fe Institute and a visiting researcher at PARC. He is one of the leading researchers in the emerging field of complexity theory. Recipient of numerous accolades and awards, he has authored several technical and popular works on this subject. His latest release, The Nature of Technology, What It Is and How It Evolves, explores this issue for a general audience. Uh, professor Arthur, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show.
1: I'm delighted to be with you.
0: Well, it's certainly a pleasure for us to have you on the program. And I have to say this is really a very fascinating book, The Nature of Technology. I'm curious, why should we actually be concerned about where technology comes from?
1: Well, uh, the whole economy builds itself out of technology without any modern technology. There'd be no modern economy, no modern prosperity, no real wealth. If you think of what we have in the economy from all the way from... Shipping and manufacturing, consuming, how we talk to each other by email and so on. It's all technology. So my curiosity is where does all that come from? Where does it come out of? Does it emerge from some cavern (laughs) under the ground or something like that? Uh, Where does technology come from? Because all our wealth and prosperity come from there too.
0: And in your book, you mentioned that although we have a good idea about specific case examples of where certain technologies come from, our understanding of technology generally is lacking.
1: Yeah, it's a very curious thing. Technology shapes our entire life. It shapes everything from our cars to our houses, our work. Everything is founded on technology. And for several reasons, we just haven't spent an awful lot of time looking at what technology really is. It's kind of an odd thing. We know all about individual technologies, so many but it's a bit like saying we know all about musical scores, we know every note that every composer wrote in the past in music but it's much harder to ask what really is music. So I'm asking what is technology and where does it come from? How is it invented? What really is innovation for that matter? These are kind of popular culture questions, but they're also scientific questions. What is technology and where does it come from?
0: And why do you think that this question hasn't been asked before?
1: There've been plenty of attempts But I think part of it is that we tend to ask a lot of questions about science. What is science? Where does science come from? How is science advanced? But technology is eclipsed by science. It stands in the background and it's held at least Intellectually it's held to be a little grubbier than science, so we, we tend not to ask too many questions about technology. And The people who really would have the answers, engineers, tend to just get on with engineering and not that many engineers have asked themselves deep questions about technology. A few have, but compared with science, technology has been kind of orphaned and ignored.
0: So uh, maybe then we can attempt to ask this question, what is technology?
1: Well, A, technology is a means to a purpose as far as I'm concerned. What we're really good at as human beings is solving problems, figuring out how to meet our needs, putting together different pieces so that we can fulfill our needs, and we've done this over thousands and thousands of years. The need might be for shelter or for curing diseases, for keeping us healthy for keeping us fed, for going from one place to another. But whatever we do, we're putting together methods or devices, instruments, things that help us meet our needs, and those are technologies. There's plenty of them. If all the technologies we have were listed, somehow it would be a huge, thick book, a lot thicker than many, many New York telephone books. There's lots of technologies out there. And so my question has been: Where do they come from? From the brows of geniuses, or from people waving wands, or what? Certainly, in the popular culture, people have this idea that what's terribly important in putting together innovations or new technologies. Now, I'm, I'm thinking of rail. When I say technology here, I'm not talking about iPhones or iPods or. So much i'm thinking really about very important technologies the jet engine the steam engine gps global positioning system and so on things like magnetic resonance imaging the big machines that put you into to scan your brain when you go into hospital and these things we have a kind of popular culture image where Some incredibly smart people somehow sit in bathtubs or stand under their shower and get brilliant ideas and shout Eureka and run down the street and they have a new technology. I'm kind of caricaturing and it's not quite that simple. But we do tend to emphasize something we call creativity and we tend to emphasize thinking outside the box whatever that means. My opinion, or at least from all the work I've done and all the technologies I've looked at, they don't come out of genius. In fact, I don't believe any such thing as genius exists. I think that's all a myth and an exaggeration. What I think really counts is that when people put together new technologies, the jet engine or or GPS for that matter, magnetic resonance imaging, what they're doing is taking existing pieces and parts and they're putting them together in a new way to solve some particular problem. So if I said I'm sitting here in Silicon Valley in Palo Alto, California, and if somehow I needed, say, to work in San Francisco and my car was in the shop, I would be sitting here thinking, okay, how can I get to work tomorrow, I could say, well, maybe I could phone a friend and get a ride into work with my friend, or maybe I could take the train, but then I'd have to get someone to drop me off at the train station, maybe take a cab at the other end. So what I'm doing when I do that sort of process, which we all of us do every day, is that we're taking a problem and we're trying to put together existing pieces and parts. I could take trains, I could get a ride, I could get a cab, and we're putting those together in such a way as to solve the problem. And what I'm contending in my book is that inventing technologies isn't different. Whether it's something spectacular like the atomic bomb or magnetic resonance imaging, the people who put those together have a very specific idea of what they want. They usually have an overall idea of several different ways to go about it, and they start to put together parts, other technologies, other methods that they can string together to solve the overall problem. So really, invention is problem-solving. It's not genius.
0: Combination of the existing elements...
1: Absolutely, and combinations crucial. Technology evolves by combining previously existing technologies. If you look at a GPS system, global positioning, those are the little handheld devices. So, if you're hiking or navigating your car, those little onboard devices. It sends out a signal to maybe four satellites, and knowing where the satellites are and the time it takes for the signal to come back, the little device figures out exactly where you are to the nearest few feet. But if you look at what that is, it's putting together existing things. Satellites, atomic clocks, computer processing chips, all those things are strung together to solve the problem. And there aren't any exceptions, all technologies, all new technologies are made, are invented by putting together existing ones to
0: solve some problem. So does this argue then against some kind of elemental technology, a fundamental building block from where else other ones arise? Yeah,
1: you know, (laughs) that's a really good question because I puzzled about that for a long time. I thought, well, okay, if all technologies are combinations of what already existed, You'd have to kind of set a time zero, say, 10,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago and say, well, those are the elements. And so we should be able to come back and find that jet engines were made out of whatever existed 2,000 years ago, you know, pottery firing techniques or deer's antlers or bow drills or sharpened obsidian or something. Of course, they aren't. So the other piece to the puzzle is that every so often, not that often, but fairly often in history over a long time, we come upon some phenomenon and we harness that phenomenon, but again, we use existing technologies to do it. So if I take radar, and radar, the phenomenon is that if you send out Radio signals, they're echoed by anything metal far away, and you can pick up those echoes and use that to find out what's out there and how far away it is. So that's the natural phenomenon. It was known about 100 years ago, and sometime around the 30s, people began to harness it. But they harnessed it with existing technologies, with radio vacuum tubes with transmitters and receivers and switches and relays and all that existed then. So the full story is that new technologies are created by combining existing ones and every so often by harnessing or capturing phenomena, chemical phenomena, optical, electrical, electronic phenomena, and a lot more recently, quantum phenomena, the transistors created out of quantum phenomena, so is the laser and so on. So this tells me that if you're looking to see what the technologies might be in 100 years' time, you'd have to know what new phenomena we're going to discover. Of course, nobody knows that almost by definition. All of that's still in the future. But technology is by no means mined out or over. There's plenty more to go, I'm
0: sure. so essentially the fundamental discoveries about the nature of the world drives technology.
1: Absolutely. And that's why technologies took off in the last three, four centuries, because with modern science, we really, really started to probe phenomena. First, the optical ones, things like telescopes. Think of the time of Galileo and Newton. But a century later, we systematically probed chemical elements and chemistry, chemical phenomena, And then in the 1900s and late 1800s, electrical and electronic phenomena. And as we captured those phenomena, made the phenomena useful for our purposes as human beings, then we had new elements to combine from. So I'm thinking of technology, all of technology. It's a bit like a chemistry that we have some basic elements. Those are the phenomena And we start to combine uses of those to make new molecules, if you like. And we combine those molecules to create yet more complicated ones, more and more complicated technologies. And there's no end. And it takes smart people, but not geniuses.
0: In in the sense that we sort of now begin to discover new phenomena and create new technologies, doesn't this just sort of drive now new problems for us to solve that arise from new technologies?
1: Absolutely. And I have this idea that maybe this is a little bit pessimistic idea, but I'm starting to see from all my work and all my research and history that you could almost say that for every new major technology, there's a new set of problems. We started to develop technologies in the 1600s that made mining much better. You could go much deeper in metal mining, looking for silver or coal. But that led to deeper mines, and that led to problems of flooding of mines. So new means had to be invented to pump out water from mines. Similarly, we've got the technology of automobiles and airplanes and internal combustion engines, and that's led to climate change and global warming and so on. We've airplanes and all of that's wonderful, jet travel, but that's led to the potential spread of Diseases. think of swine flu very, very quickly. Within two or three days, swine flu could spread from Mexico to New York. And this wasn't true a century ago. It would have taken a long time. So for every new solution, we are creating new problems. I I wouldn't want to say that's ironclad as a law, but it's certainly there. And we are in a kind of race. We see certain problems, maybe health problems. A hundred years ago, we devised new means to deal with those. Those might bring up new problems. And so we're in a kind of a race from problems bring about technological solutions that might cause yet new problems that we haven't thought of and more solutions. Now we're talking about geoengineering Or engineering the climate, which worries me a bit, but this is a solution to a problem that previous technologies have caused. I'm pessimistic about technology. I like technology, and of course I use it like everyone else. But I think we need to be a bit more wary about what we're doing.
0: Doesn't this, in a sense, breed a little bit of suspicion about technology and kind of a neo-Luddite feel about technology?
1: Yeah, well, again, I'm trained as an engineer. I love technology. and I live in Silicon Valley and nobody's going to get me off my email anytime soon. But yes, I think we should be probably a little more careful than we've been about introducing new technologies trying to look ahead at their consequences. I think we're getting more careful over the, you know, several decades. 50 years ago people would have cheered on any new technology, and now with the coming of genetic engineering of crops and so on, we're we're a lot more wary than we used to be. And I think we've maybe more to go in that, but I'm not a Luddite by any means, but I do think that we need to ask questions of any new technology, how it will disrupt our lives, what's the potential downside. And just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do something. There are lots of things we can do that we need to think twice about.
0: Mm, Indeed, indeed. You also argue that some societies might perhaps be better poised for adapting and creating new technologies.
1: It's been a long-standing puzzle, you know, what is it that makes a little enclave like Silicon Valley, or what is it that, say, makes the United States so much more advanced in technology, say, than Fiji or some island in the Pacific, or indeed more advanced, say, than... Germany might be, uh, which was advanced 100 years ago. So I've been puzzling a lot about that, and a lot of other people have been puzzling. And the conclusion I've come to is that if technology, or I'm asserting that technology is created out of existing technologies and out of phenomena that people understand, and it seems that anywhere that people understand how to work in a research way with existing technologies and with existing phenomena, they kind of get really good at that, and that kind of knowing or knowledge, it's kind of craft knowledge, and that resides locally. So you could say two or three hundred years ago, people in northern Italy and Cremona knew how to make violins, and they knew how to cure the willow or the wood that uh, was just right for violins. They knew what resins and varnishes to use and so on. And that sort of craft knowledge actually applies to very high tech as far as I can see. I'm quite amazed at the degree to which high tech, I work in high tech all the time, and I'm amazed at the degree to which that is real craft, knowing what temperatures to use, knowing what machines to use, knowing what works and doesn't work and so on. And all of that resides within people, and if you can't solve a problem, you wander down a corridor and there's somebody else you know who can solve a problem. So it's very hard to cook that up. If I'm, say, in Estonia, I might say, well, we're very good scientists here, and we've access to technical journals and science journals. Why don't we just throw a bunch of government money at technology? and see if we can get high tech going here. But actually, if you look at any enclave of technology, you see it's not just research and development money, it's not just government industrial parks or anything like that. It's a tradition that goes back for decades usually. I was quite surprised Silicon Valley grew out of early attempts at wireless telegraphy a hundred years ago uh, on the part of the US Navy in San Francisco and started up in Palo Alto. Um, A company there uh, started in wireless telegraph in 1910. And so the roots here are very, very deep, and that kind of knowledge is closely held. People imbibe it almost as children or at least as students, and that is a whole toolbox full of stuff that people can use to invent from. And so if you can get that going, it's almost like growing a little rock garden. If you can get that sort of thing going, you can very easily stay prosperous for a long time. It's a bit like saying, if you really understand how to do cooking in, say, the Cordon Bleu School in Paris, uh, you might easily transfer that. But actually, if you look at some really good craft Place like the Cordon Bleu School of Cooking, you'll find that most of it is in people's heads. It's not really written down. And you'd have to be trained there. Once you are, you kind of get it and things are much easier from there. So I'm not saying it's impossible to set up tech centers elsewhere. What I am saying is that if you can get a little bit of that craft knowledge up and running, then you can use that to build new technologies from, and that adds more to the craft and the local knowings, and you can get more technologies from that. So Silicon Valley for decades has kept renewing itself because it kept creating new technologies and new knowings and new craft. And as I'm saying, that's a bit hard to transfer, but not
0: impossible. So it's sort of self-reinforcing once the seed is planted.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and it's really organic. If you're lucky enough to plant the seeds, then you can get things like that up and running, sure. In the Midwest, there's Akron, Ohio, and in the 1980s, obviously it made tires, and big tire companies were leaving in the 80s and 90s, but it knew a lot about how to do polymer chemistry. So it parlayed the local knowledge there into working with polymer chemistry, and it's the polymer capital of the U.S. now. So there's lots of these little enclaves of knowledge that can build uh, new technologies and lead to a lot of local prosperity. They're generating new things out of nothing, and that that always
0: pays off. Your your final chapter is uh, entitled, Where Do We Stand With This Creation of Ours?
1: I think, you know, we're awfully ambivalent. There's a strange thing about technology, and that is, uh, I have to go back, really, at how we're made up as human beings. As human beings, let's say, we're whatever you want, want a million years being human beings, or two or three million years. We really feel at home in nature. And so what we really do is trust nature, we trust trees, we want to be in nature. We trust natural phenomena, we like the feel of nature, we feel at home in nature. But we pin our hopes in something different from nature, and that's technology. So we have this really ambivalent thing going on. We trust nature, but we hope for our prosperity and future and well-being of the children, we hope in technology. And so new technologies come along. Our first question is, is this natural? You know, the stem cell research, is this natural? Just how natural is it? Can we trust this? And it takes a long time before we begin to feel at home with technology. So we have this big ambivalence that we're worried about. We love technology and what it does for us, but it worries us that it is not feeling very natural to us. And I don't have a solution to that. I think that that's going to go on for a long time. We're building our lives out of something that doesn't feel very natural. And this makes us feel a little bit, not very much at home. And in my book, I mentioned Star Wars, you know, what are the stories we tell ourselves in movies these days or novels? Uh, A lot of science fiction is about that theme, that in Star Wars, the Death Star's The bad face of technology, death star is impersonal and it reduces human beings to those, remember those white clones that are running around just doing the bidding of technology, but the good guys. Luke Skywalker and so on, they're using technology too, but their technology is human and it's rickety. And if I remember, they had to kick their starships to get them started. Uh, One line in the movie says, uh, you know, they can't get their starships started, and somebody says, well, why don't you get out and push? So we're at home with technology as long as we feel it's serving natural purposes and our own human purpose, but we feel profoundly uneasy with technology if we feel that we're serving technology, then it becomes a Death Star. And I think there is a solution there and that is to make sure that all technologies enhance our humanness that technology is serving us, not that we're serving technology. Uh, It's one of the huge challenges to make sure that happens. And I think it's going to take a long time before we fully settle in with that. Uh, We need to be both welcoming of new technology and highly suspicious of it. And it's a difficult balancing act for us to pull off. I don't think we've quite got there yet
0: probably take a little while for that
1: I think yes it's a cultural evolution and 50 years ago in the 1950s people would have been all gee whiz look what we can do now 50 years later we're saying well look what we can do and we're not quite sure if we want to do that and I think that the suspicions are justified we shouldn't stop technology but we should be asking deep questions about where it's taking us and be looking at individual technologies and asking just how good are they for us and what will be the consequences. And I think we're slowly getting there. Um, I'm optimistic about what we can do. And uh, for friends of mine who say, hey, you know, I don't like technology, and there are plenty of them that I know, I say, well, fine. Does that mean you want to give up your cell phone or your car or your house or central heating or would you like to live in a cave? Um, so the technology that does plenty for us, but we shouldn't accept it without question.
0: Indeed, indeed. Well, the new book is called The Nature of Technology, What It Is and How It Evolves. Uh, Professor Arthur, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. I'm delighted. Thank you. Uh, and you were just listening to Professor W. Brian Arthur discussing the nature of technology. This is the Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So, stay tuned. to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic advancement or a hindrance. So for the following five inventions, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're an advancement for society or a hindrance, and maybe a little reason why. Professor Arthur, are you ready to play the game? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Item number one, an advancement or hindrance to society, the iPod.
1: I own an iPod. Great advancement to society. I love music, and I'll bet all your readers agree. Wonderful.
0: All right. Uh, Item number two, it's the ShamWow.
1: Oh, (laughs) all for that. Anybody with small children would
0: like that. Uh, Number three, an interest-only mortgage.
1: Wow. Now, I'm an economist, and I have to say, given all that's happened in the last three, four years, I'm suspicious of that. So that I'll sit on the fence with. If the interest rate were right, uh, that would be a step forward. So I'd have to ask what the interest rate is, if it's 20% 20% per year, I'd rather have a standard mortgage.
0: Well, at least you're asking that question. I think a lot of people didn't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Quite right, okay. yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, number four is 24-hour cable news. Um, not for me. I
1: think that's a step back. In Here's my reason. There's only so much news to go around, and on a 24-hour basis, any time I have cable news on for more than about half an hour, it just seems to repeat and repeat and repeat, especially if some disaster is happening. It's just revisited and so on. So maybe some people like it, but me, I think I'd prefer to live in the dark as far as that's concerned, so that's a turn down.
0: All right, and finally, uh, an advancement or a hindrance, Viagra. Probably good, because I think anything that prolongs
1: lives, anything that prolongs enjoyment in life, anything that helps human beings with well-being, not too bad. So that's an advance,
0: absolutely. All right. Well, Professor Arthur, I want to thank you for sticking around playing our game and, of course, uh, talking about your new book, which, again, is called The Nature of Technology, What It Is and How It Evolves. Thank you very much for your time.
1: And um, thank you indeed. Goodbye. Goodbye.